0: All right, so it's so good to see you, um, really good to see you because typically my wife and I are at first service only because of our kids, um, and right around this time they go crazy if we don't feed them and put them down. <laughs> you understand, I thank you, thank you. All the parents in the room groan, they understand. Um, so that is not the joke, by the way, uh, but it's really good to see you all is what I'm trying to say. Uh, Here's the joke. I was talking to Devon, and I don't know where this came from, but it came from somewhere. So, uh, what did Darth Vader name his daughter? Ella. Ella Vader. She uses the force to lift people up. (laughs) Oh, come on. That was great. For some of you, it's going to hit on your way home. Don't worry. Just, Just let... Okay, just stretch your hands towards Josh right there. We're just going to pray for him. Lord, would you bless his sense of humor? In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. His wife says amen. Amen. Uh, Well, it's my pleasure to be with you this morning, or now this afternoon. Um, You know, I was a little bit surprised when Aaron and Jess, we were talking, and they asked me to preach um, from Genesis through to Revelation so buckle in. Uh, it's going to be about five hours here, but that's all right. Let's go, baby. Let's go. Uh, I'm really, I'm really excited because I'm continuing our series on the church, but I'm talking about what uh, God's heart for cities. What does it mean for the church in a city? What does it mean for our families? Our family, we are the body in Christ. You have uh, brothers and sisters, cousins, uncles, dad, like right here. Um, even the ones that you don't want to be associated with. I'm sorry, when you came into the kingdom of God, you are now associated with them. Um, And so I'm talking about what does it mean to be a family together on mission? What does that look like in Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill? All right? So turn to your neighbor, all right? Look them in the eye and tell them, hey, cuz, right? Cuz, cousin, we're family, right? Hey, cuz, I bless you to receive this morning and be transformed. All right, now turn to your second choice, the neighbor you didn't turn to the first time. All right, look them in the eye and tell them, hey, cuz, you look real good. All right, single guys, single girls, I'm trying to help you out here. You look real good. Come on. You look real good Um, because you look like your heavenly father. And I bless you to be transformed this morning. Come on, that's good, right? Come on, because that's the reality. We are created. If we're created in the image of God, that means that every single person that you see has immense value. That means every single person that you know has immense value. And we sometimes forget that. Right? Because people are different than us. Some of us are black. Some of us are white. Some of us are brown. Some of us. Some of us are tall. Some of us are short. Some of us. Some of us have bad humor. Some of us have great humor. Some of us. Some of us are prideful. Some of us are modest. (laughs) Right? We're, We're so different. And sometimes we forget. We can let those differences come in between us. And so... This morning, we're going, to dive, we're going to dive a little bit deeper. Are you ready to be challenged? All right, say it like you believe it. Are you ready to be challenged? Yes, okay. Let's pray. But before we pray, I want you to do something. I want you to close your eyes. All right, I want you to picture your neighborhood. I want you to picture your street. I want you to picture the people around you. What we just talked about, about people being made in the image of God, applies to your neighbors, applies to your co-workers, applies to your block, applies to your workplace. And God, with all our hearts, we ask that you would encounter us this morning, that we would again, afresh and anew, that your Holy Spirit of love, your Holy Spirit of fire would come upon us, and that you would change us and transform us, In our hearts and in our minds. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So hold on to that image of your neighborhood and your neighbors. All right. Because I believe that this morning, God wants to come and give us fresh revelation and speak to us about some of the people that we interact with on a daily basis. All right. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts 13. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture, and then we're going to look at what happens after the passage of Scripture, and then we're going to come back to the passage of Scripture. All right? So Acts 13. Uh, the church is growing. The church is expanding. And it says here, Acts 13, verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And from this point on, the book of Acts begins to focus almost exclusively on Saul, who is actually the Apostle Paul and his travels. And it, uh, the book of Acts follows him on what's known as, as his four missionary journeys, where he travels around the entire known region, preaching the message of Christ. Preaching that people should turn from their sins, turn from their ways, turn to Jesus, and be saved, changed, healed, transformed, delivered. Come on, that's really exciting. And because of his message, because he said yes and went, uh, the entire known world was affected and changed. You know, just something small there. The entire known world was changed as a result of the message of the early church that everyone, everywhere, at all time needs to turn to Jesus. Not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles, not just the Greeks, not just the Romans, not just the Hispanics, not just the black people, not just the brown people. Not, no, like everyone needs Jesus. And this so drove, this so drove them, this message so drove them, That they were compelled to go. Had to go. The book of Jeremiah says that God's word is like a fire shut up in my bones. And it's in there. It was in them. And so they're going. Going and going and going. Look at at what Paul did, though. See, later on in the book of Acts, he has a dream. He's been led by the Spirit of God. And he says he tries to go here. He tries to go... This part, he tries to go to this part, and the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them. And then he has a dream, and in the dream, he sees someone from Macedonia, a man from Macedonia, standing and calling him. So he wakes up, concludes that God has called them to Macedonia, so they go to Macedonia. And look what he does he doesn't go to the countryside of Macedonia, he doesn't go preach to the trees, he doesn't go preach to the grass, he doesn't go preach to the flowers. He goes to the city in Macedonia. He goes to Philippi. And what we see in the, in the New Testament from this point on is the apostles are going to the major leading cultural centers of their day, the cities, and they're preaching the message of Jesus. And from there, the message of God begins to reverberate and begins to flood out to the countryside, flood out to the rural areas. And isn't that, isn't that real interesting that cities can have this kind of effect on their surroundings? See, what, what begins to happen is what starts to happen in the city moves out to the country. What happens in the cultural capitals, the cultural centers, begins to be caught by the rest of the nation. I mean, you, you see this even now. Like what happens in tech out in San Francisco and even happens in Raleigh and Durham begins to be caught by the rest of the country. What happens in, um, fashion begins in New York, begins in Paris and then kind of reverberates out over the years. What happens in medicine? What happens in law? What happens in economics? I mean, uh, we are where we are. We are where we are because of some of these leading economic schools of thought. It starts in the city, and it goes out. And see, this is really challenging for me, because before before I came to Raleigh, I was from Canada. I moved down from Toronto with my wife in 2014. But before I was in Canada, I was in Pakistan. I grew up in Karachi, which is one of the most populated and the hottest cities in the entire world. I grew up and I was surrounded by people all day, every day. You couldn't escape people. You go out into the street and there are people lined up begging. You go into the butcher. I mean, you even go to the park and everyone's there. You couldn't get away. And then I moved to Toronto. And even there, you are surrounded by people. And I saw firsthand, I saw some of the, um, dangers of the city. You know, there are certain areas of town that you go, that you you don't go near. There are certain things that you stay away from. Seems like drugs are more prevalent. It seems like there's uh, dangerous ideologies. And so I always grew up thinking city bad, country good. Get me out of the city. And in Canada, we have lots of options because it's the great white north. We have like lakes and forests and rivers and hunting and igloos and dog sleds and moose and you name it, we have it. And I remember going out and sitting by a lake and the wind wind is rusting the trees and the sun shining on my face. And I'm like, oh God, you're real and you love me. And you must love this because I'm in your creation. So why did Paul go into the city? And what I've begun to realize, and this is actually something that I've begun to look at over the past three or four years, and this is part of what led Hendria and I. This is what propelled us to actually resign from staff and to join the financial industry because we felt the call of god once again to be involved in our city to be involved in our nation to be involved in our in our region in a different way so can i share with you a couple a couple thoughts that have um that have really anchored me in this process about cities if you go to genesis 1 and i'm going to summarize it for you you don't need to turn there um, but in Genesis 1, we see creation happening. We see lights. We see birds, trees, fish. We see all sorts of things. God is speaking it into being. And it's good, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good. And it's like God is delighting in the creation. And then as the crowning achievement of creation, who does he create but Adam and Eve? And he puts them together and he says, fill the earth, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And he speaks his blessing over them. And that blessing of God wasn't just multiply physically. That blessing of God wasn't just uh, in their immediate circumstances. Because in Genesis 2, we see that Adam is put into the Garden of Eden to work the ground. We see that the work that God gives to humans is actually part of the blessing of God. And what God is doing is he is inviting Adam and Eve to step into his story and become like him in creating and working with what he has given to us. So what do we see? We see that Adam's put into the Garden of Eden to garden it. Now he's not put in there as a park ranger to be like, Hey, get off get off the tree! Every, keep everything the exact same. Do not touch it. Do not move it. Nor is he put into the garden to exploit it. He's not put into the garden to have everything worship him and take it and destroy it just for his joy, just for his, The um, you know, he's not put in the garden to be mean and nasty. But he's put in the garden to work it. So what's he going to do as a gardener? You know, it's the same thing that I do in my house. Like, there are some plants growing there. I don't like those plants. So I'm going I'm to move them. I'm going to uproot them. I'm going to plant something else. I want, I want some fruit. I'm going to plant a fruit tree. My wife and I, this year, we um, set up a garden and we planted watermelons. Hey, watermelon. Um, we got two watermelons. It was, it was awful. It was awful. A lot of work, a lot of toil, not very much fruit. Um, we planted stuff. Why? Because that is the invitation of God to you and to me. See, what God has done is he has given us capital. Now, when I say capital, what do people think of? They think of finances. That has got to be the worst way to look at capital. What capital is, is resources. And I'm so grateful for Jay Jacob and Bruno Roche. I read the book, Completing Capitalism, changed my life. Because they start to express in there that there's actually multiple types of capital. There's not just financial capital. That is true. There are financial resources. There are entire industries and services devoted to stewarding financial capital. (coughs) But there's also natural capital. It's the world, it's the beauty around us. It's the trees, it's the ore, it's the, it's the stuff that God has created. There's also human capital, the, the things inside of us that make us uniquely human. Your, your brilliance, your looks, your beauty, your creativity, the things that God has given to each one of us. And then there's also social capital in which how we live and interact and move together and how we um, connect and how we grow as a society. And I think there's something they missed out. There's also spiritual capital. God has given to us spiritual resources that we can grow with and use. The invitation from God to Adam and Eve was to work with his capital, was to work with his resources, and was to take his resources and rearrange them in such a way that it causes humans to flourish. Right? So, so what begins to happen? You begin to have people who begin to build. What do they build with? Well, they take the raw material of wood, of lumber, and they begin to build homes so that we can have shelter. We can have, um, we can be protected from the sun and the rain. We have people who are artists. That is not me as much. Um, if you don't believe me, come and stand next to me during worship and you will hear me sing. I'm not lyrically, musically inclined. Um the Bible says make a joyful noise, and I emphasize the noise and the joy as well. But there's the noise, right? But there are some of there's some of you, man, oh my gosh, you you take the raw material of sound and you turn it into like it's just beauty when I hear it. it. Makes my heart rejoice. And some of them we have the privilege of of listening to and worshiping along with. There's some of you who are, who are who sculpt like you take the raw material of marble and like clay and you make it and mold it and change it so it almost looks lifelike. There's so, there, there are some of you who are like stand-up comedians and who are gifted at taking the social capital, talk about human interactions, and making it real funny. There's some of you who are lawyers who deal in social capital and how we treat each other and how we should live and how we have to abide by the rules within our society. They're like, I could go on. Every single industry that you're a part of is actually dealing with the capital that God has given to you and given to me. And you and I, we are living in the blessing of Genesis Genesis 1. We're living under the, the word that God spoke, which was be fruitful, increase in number, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. We can't get away from that because that is embedded in us. Just like we are created in the image of God, just like you carry his DNA, just like you look like him, you act like him, you think like him, you can't get away from the fact that he has tied your work with his blessing. I mean... For those of you who are stay-at-home parents, can I get an amen? Amen. Like, seriously, raise your hand so we can pray for you because you need it. Oh, my gosh. Um, Stay-at-home parents, what are you working with? But you're working with the raw potential of your children. And you're helping to rearrange them. Not physically, praise the Lord, but you're helping to rearrange them so that they become productive, happy members of society. Those of you who are in education, you're doing the same thing. In fact, when you look at universities, every single subject that has been offered to study at university is coming out of Genesis 1. It's coming out of looking at what God has offered people, the raw materials God has placed in this earth, and learning how to deal with it. That's what you're doing. So, like it or not, one way or another, you are tied to Genesis 1. You are tied to the blessing of God on your work. Whether you're in real estate, whether you're in law, whether you're in business, doesn't matter. You are working within Genesis 1. And the invitation from God, look what he does. He puts Adam in the garden, and then he begins to say, all right, son, now what do you want to do? What do you want to create? And Adam begins to create, and I think, I think, the invitation from God is for Adam and Eve to build a city. Because in Genesis 2, it says this. There's, um, there's a description of what is in Eden. Genesis two ten. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedillium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Okay. Thought experiment. Why on earth Adam is just created? He has no tools. He has no technology. There's no no understanding of how some of this works, and yet the Bible is very clear that there's gold, beryllium, and onyx. That requires quite a bit of tools and technology to work. You need to know how to extract the gold out of the ground. You need to know how to refine it. You need to know how to melt it. You need to know how to work it and and so create it. Why is that even mentioned in Scripture when Adam doesn't have the tools or the capacity to work it? And it has to be that the invitation from God is for him to grow and innovate and begin to learn how to extract and begin to learn how to rearrange and begin to learn how to create so that all of us flourish and thrive. And we begin to see this. Throughout Genesis, now people in Genesis 4 are cities built and the city is the center where they're um, creating technology, where they are learning about uh, tools, they're learning about arts, there's the lyre, there's the harp, there's other instruments being released and so now there's art being created. Cities are where people congregate together and their natural God-given creativity, talents begins to flow and innovation begins to spring up and spring out. The natural outcome of the Garden of Eden is the city of God. Of course, you begin to see how cities are also capable of terrible, terrible things in Genesis. You see the story of the city of Sodom. You see the story of the Tower of Babel, which actually is on the plains of Shinar and is a precursor to the city of Babylon. And so for the rest of Scripture... You are seeing how these two cities are contrasted. You have Babylon on one side. You have people creating for themselves. People making a name for themselves. People trying to live for themselves. Opposed to God. And on the other you have Zion. The blessed city of God. The the city where God dwells. The city where his people reside. I told you we'd be going from Genesis through to Revelation. Revelation. Because in Revelation, at the end of time, when the fullness of time happens, redemption happens, we see once again these two cities. We see Babylon personified as this woman drunk on a, on a beast. And what, what is Babylon? But the cities and the industries that are opposed to God, doing things for themselves making a name for ourselves, making money for ourselves, exploiting others. And judgment comes upon Babylon, and then we see what? The holy city coming down out of the clouds. And John says, And a voice from heaven said, Now the dwelling of God is with men. Where? In a city. The holy city coming down out of the clouds. And we see the city's beautiful, gold is used as pavement, sapphires, rubies, pearls adorn it. But in the middle of this city, what do we see but a garden? We see the garden city, we see Eden. We see the fulfillment of what God has given to humans and God dwelling with them. And this is why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, that the people called by God, they wandered on this earth, they looked for a city, but they found none. They were looking for a country of their own, because they were looking for the city whose founder and maker is God. And that's why I want to let you know that all your life, if you have felt like you never belong, if you have felt like you are, you are just in the wrong place, no one really knows you, no one really sees you, that longing of your heart will only be satisfied in the city of God. It's because God has called you that you feel that. It's because God has called you that you sense that. And so we are moving towards his ultimate city. Come on. That's some really good news. So my conclusion has to be this. If God loves humans... And if humans are created in the nature of God, the image of God, if we are by nature the image of God, then God has to love cities more than the country. Because there is more of the image of God per square mile in the city than per square mile of the country. The cities are stamped with the image of God. Our city, your city is stamped with the image of God. Wherever you go, you look and there's people and you see children of God. And so Paul realizes this. Paul begins to go. He begins to step into these these cultural centers and begins to share the gospel with them. And we see the entire world turned around. My friends, what if God's called you? What if you are where you are, not by accident, What if you're in your neighborhood not because you just like the house or because it was a good price or because it was close to schools? What if God has put you in your neighborhood? What if God has put you in your company? What if God has put you where you are? To help bring cities to him. See, because Paul gets so filled with the Spirit of God that he gets sent and I pray for the day that we are so filled with the Spirit that we are sent into our workplaces and our schools. We are sent into our families. We're sent into our companies. We're sent to our coworkers because you are sent and we have been sent by him. Now going back to uh, Acts 13. How, how is this going to happen? Acts 13. Let's look at it. Acts 13 says this. Once again, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers Barnabas Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen a lifelong friend of Herod the tetrarch and Saul. <coughs> While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, "Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them." Then after fasting and praying they laid their hands on them and sent them off. You know what I see when I when I look at Acts 13? I see the DEI dream. There's a lot of talk right now about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And there's some trainings that um, that companies are putting on, people are putting on, because they're realizing we're stronger together. We're stronger when we have other voices and other perspectives at the table than just a singular voice, than just a singular perspective. And so there's um, a whole thrust towards less... Let's make it more inclusive. Let's invite more people in who can help strengthen us. That is good. That's not wrong. That's not bad. But it can be wrong and it can go bad if we try to, if we try to do it out of our own strength. If we try to force it because what we see here is I see five men who are all very different. Okay. You have Simeon, who's called Niger. That means he is black, black, dark, dark, dark. Niger means black in Latin. He's probably from North Africa and he is very dark from a very different background than, say, um, Lucius of Cyrene. And Lucius would have looked more Mediterranean. He would have been dark, but he wouldn't have been uh, he wouldn't have been like Simon, or sorry, Simeon. Uh, Lucius would have been maybe a little bit closer in color to me. And yet, they're together, worshiping the Lord, praying and fasting. And then along with them, we have Manaean, And Menaean is a friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Some uh, some translations say that he was like an adopted brother. He had grown up with Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch was a ruler. So that means Menaean must have been rich, wealthy, and connected. We don't know about his race, but we know that he but we know about his socioeconomic status, which was up there. High up. And then we have Barnabas. And Barnabas is a Levite, he's a Jew by birth. But he was also probably wealthy because he owned fields, he owned land, and in Acts 4, excuse me. In Acts 4, we see how he sold his fields and his land, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And then, along with them, we have Paul. Paul, who's grown up a Pharisee. Paul, who is part of the elite religious class. Paul, who will tell you everything that you're doing right, or everything you're doing wrong, and if you want to get right with God, this is how you do it. And Paul, who would have been very educated and absolutely brilliant to the, to this day, people still study the letters and the writings of Paul because they're amazed at how he was able to connect with all these different segments of society. Smarter than anyone in this room. Hands down. You have five men who are all very, very different. Different cultures, different races. Paul even alludes that there were different sexualities together in the church in some of his letters. People who are called out of different segments and areas of society. Why? Because they're looking for a city whose founder and maker is God. Because they know there's something more and they know there's something better. And so they're willing to give up their money. They're willing to give up their power. They're willing to give up their reputation. They're willing to give up their wealth. Heck, they're willing to give up their time. They give up their time so they can be together praying and fasting. How many of us are like, yeah, we follow Jesus. I'm going to go pray by myself. Because to get with others actually costs me. It costs me gas. It costs me time. You know what I can do with an hour of my life? I'm a parent of young kids. Yo, I can sleep for an hour of my life. I'm just letting you know. But these guys, they're giving up their time. They're giving up their power. They're giving up their wealth. They're giving up their privilege. And they're doing it because they're being encountered by the Holy Spirit. Yes, They're doing it not because anyone told them to, not because they had to, but because they're so taken by the beauty of Jesus. They're so taken by his glory and his majesty and the reality that we are working under the blessing of Genesis 1. We are working with God. And now they're working for the good of their cities. Because the Christians of the early church, they were scandalous. Because they mixed the races and the classes in ways that were unheard of during this time. In their meetings, you had rich and poor, young and old. You had people who who may not have a lot of financial capital, but you had people who had a lot of social capital. You had people who maybe had a lot of natural capital, but didn't have a lot of human... You know, there were people who were rich in different ways, poor in different ways. You had people who... You had men and women. You had families together. You had people, slaves and free. Across the spectrum gathering together to worship and praise the name of Jesus. And this was so attractive. This was so attractive. That it swept the entire known world. In fact, there was an emperor at the time. Um, I can't, can't remember his name. I will find the quote for you. But he said derisively towards the Christians, he said, look at these Christians that take care of their they take care of our widows as well as their own. Because up until the Christians, each class, each race took care of their own people. Oh, no, 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 we can't take care of you. You're Latino. I'm not. Oh, no, 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 you, you go to your people. This is one of the reasons that the widows fought. Because the Greek widows and the, Jew, and the Jewish widows were at odds over who was getting more of the support. Each race takes care of their own. Each class takes care of their own. And Christians come on the scene and go, oh, no, no, no. We're part of every class and we're part of every race. You're my brother and you're my sister. And they at the cost of their lives. Come on. When we love like this, when we give ourselves up like this, the world sees and they're taken by it. You know why hospitals came about? Because Christians said, bring us your poor, bring us your sick, we'll take care of them. You know, when the plague was sweeping Europe and entire populations, those that were rich and powerful enough to flee, they fled the cities. You know who ran in? Christians ran in to take care of people at the cost of their lives. Because they said, look, we're already part of a city. We can never be shaken. So let's go and give our life away. And when the world sees people, a group of people, a company of people who are willing to give away their power and give away their wealth and give away their time, there's something about that that makes them go, what, why, how, who are you? And that's the only way. That's the only way that we'll see true reformation happened in hearts. We're seeing some changes in systems. Systems come from people's hearts. Right? It Oh my gosh. I can't remember who it was. Dr. Reinhold Neubauer, and he made this observation. He said that organizations are always more immoral than the people that are part of them. What I mean by that what he meant by that is that the, the things that are really terrible are magnified within an organization, within systems, within structures, within classes. And we see some of that. We see people calling some of that out. That's good. Call it out. But work on your heart first. Otherwise, you can call out the oppressors, but then before you know it, you'll be oppressing the ones who don't agree with you. And before you know it, you turn into the very thing that you're trying to call out. Because we're all trying to be our own judge. We're all trying to be our own God. And we're all trying to be our own Lord. The only thing that will truly change us and the only thing that will truly transform us is a work of the Spirit in our hearts. Hallelujah. That's right. That's right. When that happens, we, we will see the most inclusive, the most together, the most diverse the, mo- the most incredible city within a city. And that's what we see a glimpse of in Revelation: People of every tribe, every tongue, every language gathered together, worshiping God, praising God. Man, I'm excited for that. Sometimes I can get down with my African brothers and sisters. You know, I show up to some of their worship services, and they're like dancing and they're colorful and this loud, and it's amazing. I can get down with some of my white brothers and sisters who listen to a good sermon. They're like, hmm, that is quite good. I like it. But then they go and they, and they start putting it into practice and it's amazing. I can get down. You know, one of the things that my parents hated, there were leaders of the church in Pakistan. When we came to Toronto, they said, no one goes into each other's homes here. They were there every day. They would be in someone's home. They'd be bringing food. They'd be praying for someone, loving someone within the church to the point that my dad told me back in the day he, they had a gate that would go across the front door and they would lock it. And there was a balcony that he could hop off. And so he would hop off. He would risk his life to go around, to like hug the side of the building, reach around and lock the door and then come back because then people would show up to his house and they would pull on the gate and they would assume they were out. Like how crazy is that? That in order to to not be bothered, you had to pretend like you weren't home. Each one of us, each race, brings something beautiful to the body of Christ. Each class brings something beautiful. And what the Spirit does is, he is moving us out of our comfort zones, into his mission, partnered with him in this world. Are you willing to say yes to the invitation? Are you willing to say yes to the invitation of the mission-sending God, the God of mission who is sending you and calling you? Because it's happening right now. And when we say yes, and not just us, when the church, the church, across the city of Raleigh-Durham, when we start giving our lives away even more, this entire nation and region will see. And that's my prayer. That the name of Jesus would be uttered on every street corner. That the name of Jesus in every building. The name of Jesus over every institution. The name that is above all names. The names that every name must bow to. The name that all of this came from. And the name that all of this is going to. That he would receive the reward of his suffering. And he would be lifted high in our midst. And it starts now. And it starts here. Come on. Stand with me. Stand with me. Let's pray. Abba, I want you to close your eyes and hold out your hand. And if, as I've been talking, you have been saying, yes, God, I say yes to your mission. I say yes to what you've called me. I say yes to where you're sending me. I say yes to the people you're bringing in front of me. I want you to begin to tell him. Just tell him. Say yes, God, I say yes to you. God, I say yes to you. Begin to picture your neighbors. Begin to picture your neighborhood and say, God, what are you saying for my neighborhood? God, what are you saying for my neighbors? Lord, would you come right now? Would you begin to flood our hearts and our minds with supernatural love for you and love for those around us? Would you begin to send us and call us and pull us into you? No matter what industry we're in, whether we're in medicine, whether we're in education, whether we're in finances, Lord, in every industry, may we be sold out wholeheartedly devoted to you. In the mighty name of Jesus, we bless you, church family. We bless you to be so full of his spirit, so full of his presence that you, like Paul, are compelled to go. You're compelled on the mission of God. We bless you in the mighty name of Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit, and fall fresh on us once again. Fall on our hearts. Fall on our minds. Fall on our souls. going to do one more thing, and that is if you're able to, I'd like you to turn to someone next to you. Partner up. Find someone around you. I want you to just take a minute and share with them what industry you're in, what maybe where you live. We're going to take a moment and we're going to pray for each other that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the flame of love himself would fall on our hearts and minds and empower us for his mission all right so find someone next to you determine who's going to go first and put your hands on each other's shoulders and begin to boldly pray for the fire and the presence and the power of jesus to fall on each other none of these wimpy prayers none of these like god maybe no god would you come and would you hit my friend would the kingdom of heaven flood out from them? Will the kingdom of heaven flood into them? Will they be changed and transformed and become the light to this world? Become, become your agent to this world.